So hi folks, Dave here. Before we start the show, I wanted to let you know that we've teamed up with audible.co.uk and we're offering you a free audiobook. All you have to do is register for a one month free trial to claim your free audiobook, of which there are over 250,000 to choose from. It's a 30 day free trial. It means you can choose a free audiobook, which is yours to keep whether or not you decide to cancel that trial period or not. Free piece of advice, if you're gonna try an audiobook, go for Bill Bryson's A Walk in the Woods. Anyway, sign up at www.audible.co.uk forward slash tech talks. Back to the show. Welcome to Tech Talks, the twice weekly podcast that is for the love of tech with David Savage and Jack Biss. Coming up on today's show, we're talking to the co-founders of Brigade, a recruitment app that is helping to transform the casual labour market and try and ensure that there's a frictionless experience for both people looking for staff and someone who's looking for a job. Then in the second half of the show, we're going to have a bit of an interesting chat all about China and their social credit system that's due to be introduced in 2020. And that will be a conversation where I'm joined by Ben Forks from the data company Yodar. I hope that sounds like an interesting listen. Enjoy the show. So I've got no co-hosts today. Jack's on holiday, unfortunately Josie's away too. Uh, hence us deciding to have two interviews of a sort. One, our featured guest, our pre-recorded interview with Brigade, looking at their business and how, as I said in the introduction, they're trying to remove friction from hiring process in the hospitality sector. And then in the second half of the show, I'm going to be joined on the phone by Ben. He's someone who's been on the show before. Uh, and, and I'll be perfectly honest, it's an article that's not necessarily overly hot off the press. Uh, It's been written about um, on a consistent basis since since 2014 when the Chinese government announced this measure, but all about the Chinese uh, government introducing their social credit system and how data and tech is playing a role in that and what it might mean for people in that society. So yes, as I said, we're being joined by an expert because I'll be perfectly frank, I probably can't talk about that on my own. Uh, But do keep listening. Plenty of interesting stuff in today's show. Here's the interview with Brigade. So we are chatting to Florent and Jean from um, Brigade. Uh, How long have you guys been around? How long has Brigade been in existence? Uh, We created the company two and a half years ago, but the product is live uh, since January 2016. And you're very new to the London market? And we're very new in London because yep. we launched uh, three months ago. Okay, but you started in Paris. We started in Paris. And if anyone's not familiar with Brigade, what, what is the product? What is the product? Um, Brigade is a very simple solution to get staff on demand. Mm-hmm. Uh, today it's available for hospitality businesses. So the use case is very simple. Uh, for example, you need a waiter uh, for a shift tonight. Just have to go to the app, post the shift, and a few minutes later, you get the name, the phone number of the person who is going to work with you, mm-hmm. and you don't have to deal with any kind of contract or payment or anything. So, how did you guys stumble upon the idea? Because talking to you before we hit re- record, you talked a lot about social purpose, but where did the idea come from? Because you're a serial entrepreneur, both of you, you've, you've, you've had different businesses in different sectors. Yeah, long story short, we, Jean has a family who used to, to work in the, yeah, in the industry, industry yeah. Yeah. 
And after selling my previous company, I decided to invest in a restaurant. Mm -hmm. And I discovered how to remain polite. Hard and complex it was to to manage people in this industry. Uh, People appearing, disappearing uh, all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, The turnover was so high. And I was like, okay, we need to, I'm sure there is something, there is a solution which exists uh, already to, to get stuff on demand. So I checked on Google and couldn't find anything. So it meant that two years ago, you could have a, a cab uh, in a few minutes. You could, can get a pizza in a few in a few minutes also, but you can't get stuff uh, mm. to work for you uh, easily. So we decided to make something. But you mentioned there that staff are fairly fluid. They can come and go to a certain degree. Whilst you're fixing the, the supply and demand problem up front, mm. do you think that technology also helps some of those staff remain with those businesses longer or is that something that's harder to fix? I think it's core to this industry to, to have this very high turnover. People, uh, you know, people move from I mean, within a city but also from a city to another city uh, and if they see they can be paid a bit more uh, in another, another restaurant, for example, mm. they're going to switch to this uh, new employer. So. Yeah, you want to add something? Well, and you know, like people, they, they like to move to have more skills and work in different environments. So, yeah, as Flo said, I believe this is core to the, this um, industry. And, mm-hmm. you know, like technology or digital won't change much. But it doesn't mean that people disappear. So it means they're somewhere else, but they maybe they're, they're still available. So our job is just to, to connect uh, the, the, the companies, mm-hmm. uh, restaurants, bars, pubs, hotels, uh, which need some staff and the people who are available. So in the past, they, for example, your business uh, needs someone. Uh, it's really hard to know if there is someone somewhere available. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the contrary, you want to work. It's a real pain to go to every restaurant, bar and say, okay, I'm available. Do you need someone for tonight or for next week or for a full-time contract? Yep. So what we do is just connecting these two entities uh, very easily and managing all the all the transaction to make it safer, uh, easier, and very convenient for uh, everybody. With people that we frequently fight ourselves. I suppose the sharing economy and peer-to-peer platforms are encouraging the gig economy. Yep. To a large degree, um, and you're offering a, a technology platform. But how do you make sure that one of those concerns that people could be locked out if they're from maybe more disadvantaged situations, they don't have the same access to technology as other people. How, how do you make sure that they're not locked out of the opportunities that you are presenting? Yeah, so yes, we're uh, a tech platform for sure. But according to us, technology should make things easy, uh, more simple, uh, more accessible to, to, more to people. Yeah, more inclusive to people. So. If you, if you build a product that requires users to have a very, I don't know, very uh, high skills or very complex smartphone, whatever, it means you, you, your product is not right. Mm-hmm. So what we do is just making something very easy, very simple, so everybody can use it. And the, 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 the mission we have is just to, to value people's skills. We want to, we want to make to, to get the most out of people uh, who are using the platform. We want to train them. We want to, to make sure they, when you work, you get paid for what you do, mm-hmm. you get paid for your skills, you get paid for all the hours you're going to, uh, to, to work. 
and uh, we want to make sure these people we are able to to access uh, a good healthcare, um, access training, access insurance. So we, I mean, when you're a platform, you you, you connect demand, offer, but you're connecting people. And you need to make sure these people are in a good and safe situation so they will stay longer on your platform. It's an interesting dynamic because a lot of people have talked about the fact that the industry needs to pick up that training piece. Um, when you say you know, you're going to provide training, you're almost saying, all right, well, if industry aren't going to do it, we, we, we'll do that. But how, how are you doing that? Because that, that sounds like a massive undertaking for effectively a, a, a recruitment platform. Like, let's say you're a waiter. Yeah. You, you start working with us and you do a few uh, waiter shifts. Everything goes well and we're going to, to automatically offer you the, the chance to do higher uh, level shifts. Then if everything goes well, it means you're very good and we're going to, to, to continue going this way. If we feel, by we I mean, <laughs> the algorithm feels mm. that you need some training, then we're going to offer you uh, a training for free. Mm-hmm. But for us, it's a good thing. For you, of course, it is a, it's a good one. For us, it's a, good, it's a good thing because it means we're going to be able to sell you uh, at a higher price, at a better price. So you're going to make more money, we're going to make more money, and the clients, uh, the, the restaurant is going to be happier. So everybody's winning. You've not been in London long. Yeah. Uh, why come to London? You know, you've, you've launched in, in Paris, uh, you're live in Lyon, you know, why not go to Barcelona or Madrid and prove that the model works there? We like the rain. <laughs> <laughs> Next time we'll go to same places. Come <laughs> <laughs> play from Barcelona. <laughs> no, the, the answer is very easy. We, we, London is the biggest, biggest market in Europe yep. and it's also a good way to, I mean, it's a very complicated and complex market. Mm. So it's a good way to challenge your product and make sure you're ready to, to go to other countries. After London, it will be much easier to go to the US or to Spain or to Germany. But then if, if, if you go first, I and mean, after France, if you go first to Spain, going to London will be still very complicated. So we decided to make the move uh, quite uh, rapidly. Our way first. Yeah. So how do you see yourself growing that platform? I mean, you, you kind of alluded there to the fact that you want to prove that it works in this particular ecosystem, but what's, as, a, as a young company, what kind of level of spend are you looking at, say, sales and marketing, or is it, is it organic and being driven by users? It's, uh, so the, the, from an acquisition point of view, it's 50% uh, organic, 50%, uh, let's say, paid acquisition. Yep. Uh, it depends if you're on the demand side or uh, supply side, uh, of course. Um, we, we're a very local marketplace, uh, meaning that we, so w- when we launch a city, we, mm-hmm. we, we stay in the city, we have to dig into this city, we, had to, we have to create a new, a, new, um, a new database in this city, so it's very uh, local. Uh, we decided to, to launch in Paris first because we're from Paris and it was very uh, convenient and easy for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we had to, to prove that the solution uh, we've built was working in a different city, but we decided to stay in the same, let's say, ecosystem, so mm-hmm. we, we've launched in Lyon. And then we wanted to, to show that the, the product can work um, in a different country, uh, different time zone, different uh, currency, different regulations. So we decided to, to go to London. Uh, then when we'll have the, 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 the whole product working very well uh, in London, Paris mm-hmm. and Lyon, we'll be able to move to other countries okay. and raise funds.
Now, out of interest, one thing that's often quite difficult for a startup is validating a co-founder. You two have worked, you worked on a second startup, your second startup, Florent. Yeah. Uh, Jean, you were the lead developer. Yeah. What was it that you recognised in each other that went, actually, this is a dynamic that works? Because often there's a case that someone will have a startup and they'll have a co-founder and that co-founder is the technical person and they'll leave and they've got to go back to the drawing board. Why does this work? Whew. Good question. Well, I believe, you know, like, you know, no matter of your skills and your, you know, like the value you add to the project, you, have, you need to have an entrepreneurial man- mindset, you know, because first of all, before being a CTO, a CPO, a CEO, a C, whatever you want, mm-hmm. uh, you will be an entrepreneur at heart. So, you know, like you need to find somebody that will share the same, uh, you know, like wish for adventure. When, when you decide to, to launch a project with someone, it means you're going to spend I mean, it's it's like a wedding. It's like a, I mean, you're going to spend your whole life with this person. Uh, you're going to to travel with this person. You're going to to go through money problems with this person. You're going to, I mean, you have you have children. All your employees. I mean, we have fifty employees. It's like having a huge family, and you have to, to deal with everyone's problem. Yeah. So, just you just need to make sure. Uh, you two or three or four uh, I don't know how many I don't know what's the the Swiss part for the the founders but anyway just need to make sure that you're very aligned Mm -hmm. Uh, you want the same thing Uh, you are targeting the same vision and that you can spend time together in many different situations and and being very resilient you know like a lot of tenacity because you know like as Laurent said you know it's you will deal with all the problems of the companion of the employees, mm. so you, you need to be ready for this. You, you mentioned there that you've got 50 employees? We, we do have 50. How many are in London? Uh, 10 in London. Have you found it difficult to step away from France and spend more time in London? I suppose as two co-founders, this is your baby, right? And yeah. all of a sudden you're in a different country. It's, um, actually, Jean spends quite a lot of time in Paris, yeah. uh, usually travel. Um, it's like launching a new company. Uh, going to another country mm. so it's a bit uh, then you have a of course it's the same brand the same company but you have a very different stages uh, in Paris I mean we, we get like 40 people uh, the company makes quite a, a lot of money so uh, we have a very big office uh, everything is very new um, and you, you have a, a relation with the people which is quite different uh, here we're actually not 10 but nine people Mm -hmm. Uh, we're changing the office every not every week but every month Uh, and you have a very different relation uh, with the 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 employees here so at the same time it's um, a bit refreshing because it's like starting starting over so you you go through the same well not the same issues because you you know them so trying to avoid them yes it's very nice to feel the, the you know the fresh feeling of the of the beginning, and at the same time it's a bit like again you know like I have to go through all this again uh, before having the same the same level. I think it's even more true because it's the the second country or second city. Uh, I think after two, three, four, five uh, new countries, then you get used to it and you have a very um, I don't know, precise process and you know how to do it. But we're still discovering it. So it's, uh, it's a bit, it's really hard when you, when you just have to, to, to take a train, you know, from Paris to London, or from London to Paris, 
and you go to first a very different ecosystem, uh, the, the mindset is very, very different. And mm -hmm. to even if there is the same logo on the wall, two very different companies. Yeah. Last question. What's next? <laughs> you've, you've, you've come to London. I, you're obviously still focused on the hospitality industry, but what are the plans for the business going forward? Um, so Par Paris is going very well. Uh, London is, of course, the, the, the beginning. So we need to, to, to get much bigger in London. And then we want to, we want to go for other countries. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Uh, still in the hospitality business. And then when will be the, the, the European leader in the hospitality industry go for... So, so are your ones with yeah. less rain? You're saying that you came to London because of the, uh, the love oh, of the rain. Oh, yeah, the rain. yeah <laughs> no, only rainy countries. Uh, <laughs> There's plenty of them. Sweet, Sweden. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Look, it's been very. Uh, it's been. It's been great to spend some time with you and just to, to have a bit of a chat. I hope it continues to go well. Good luck here in London. Thank you. And uh, yeah, no, thank you for being part of the show. Thank you. Thank you very yeah. much. So look, a few quick observations from me, what really caught my attention, um, and this is going to be short because I feel a little bit awkward talking to a microphone on my own, <laughs> but first of all, one of the things, one of the points that was made during the interview that tech should make things easy and more inclusive, and if you build a product that requires a complex smartphone, your product isn't right, I thought that's a really interesting point. On the show before, we've talked about the fact um, that, that there's a concern that people might be locked out of the digital economy. And there's a lot of research from Nominet Trust around this point. So having a system to get a job, especially when you're talking about people who may have moved to the UK relatively recently or they're from a deprived area where maybe they can't afford to have uh, all-you-can-eat data or even have the latest phones that, that um, would run um, a high-spec app of some kind, then you've got to cater for them. You've got to make sure that those people aren't left behind and can access jobs. So I thought that was a really interesting point, a really valid point to make during the course of the interview. I think it's great that the service can be um, basically uh, accessed and uh, used via text. So SMS comes back into its own. Um, and that's, that's a really forward-thinking um, innovation by the guys at Brigade. I also really liked the point that they want to train people. They want to make sure that they're paid for their skills, that they can access healthcare and insurance. Um, you know, good and safe with it, with the two words that were mentioned, and they will stay on your platform. In the casual labour market, it's unlikely that you're going to suddenly be able to transform the attrition rates. What you can do is you can build up a community of people that can be dipped into time and again that have a loyalty towards that platform. And yes, that that obviously is a huge benefit to Brigad, but it is a brilliant benefit to their customers and having worked in recruitment for the best part of 10 years I can tell you now that if you've got a community that your client trusts that's hugely valuable and they're willing to pay for it so Brigade have really got um, a, a, a valuable um, value proposition to the market there that will resonate with a lot of different clients. A third point and, and final one that I wanted to just draw out in this very, very quick section was that they think London is a great place to test yourself. Here's a French company that started in Paris, that then expanded to Lyon, and then had the option of going to a number of different European cities, but felt that London was an important place to be. And that is such a positive message. Um, we try not to bring politics into this show too much. You do know that both myself and Jack are Remainers. We try not to let that cloud uh, judgment and, and, and try and stay as open-minded as we can. And it is really positive that 
despite Brexit, here are two people who've ran and set up a successful business um, in a different country who still see London as an, as an absolute essential market to prove themselves in. I think that's a really positive message, whatever the political environment, that this city is relevant and matters. Um, anything that harms that is bad, obviously, but still seen very much as the place to be by people from across Europe. So that, that's very positive and something that I kind of wanted to mention and finish on. I'm going to run into the advert break, but do stick with the show. As I say, Ben is going to be dialing in and joining me for a conversation all about China's social credit system. So stay with us. Here's our advert. Jack, I know it's a bit of a stretch, but just imagine you're running a business, okay? And you need to grow that business. And talent, as you know, costs a lot, Mm. not to mention it being hard to find. Mm. If you could hire a software engineer for your business that probably has a terrible product if your track record is anything to go by... (laughs) But it's trained specifically to your business needs for just around 24000 would you? Dave, that sounds like a bargain, and I think I would. I'm slightly insulted that you can't picture me running a business. <laughs> I know, it's such a stretch, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, well, you'd be in luck because there is a new program that can deliver highly skilled developers, um, way under the usual cost quota by recruiters. Mm. So why don't you prove me that you do have a little bit of business savvy acumen there and get in touch? Do you know what? I'm going to, if not just to prove you wrong, but who do I drop a line to, Dave? How do I get in touch? Easy. You simply email future-skills-program at harveynash.com. Future-skills-program at harveynash.com. Can they find me a new podcast co-host to replace you? Shut up, please. So on today's news article, we're not talking about something that's necessarily in the news this week. I've got to be perfectly honest. This is a story that passed me by, which is fairly awful because it's been around since 2014. But the State Council of China are planning the outline for a construction of a social credit system, which effectively will rank citizens within China uh, and score them, and that will then determine what level of access they have to certain facilities. Joining me on the phone, I've got Ben Fork, who is the founder and CEO of Yodar, um, a company uh, formed here in London dedicated to giving people control of their data, not having large state bureaucracy controlling data and determining how people's lives are then lived. Thanks for giving up some time, Ben. Hi, Dave. Thanks very much for being here. Happy to, happy to participate. Um, look, I, I, as I said, I, this, this kind of passed me by a bit, which is uh, <laughs> pretty bad, given this is a technology podcast. But um, actually, a friend um, who listens to the show in America uh, asked what my opinion would be on this. Um, and I started reading up about it and thought, this is kind of insane, isn't it? Well, it, it, it's absolutely insane. Um, but this is what happens in authoritarian systems. You have no privacy. So, look, from, from, a, from a pure data point of view, the way, that they've, the way that they've decided to construct this, as far as I can tell from, from reading up about it, is they have a number of private companies involved and uh, including the likes of Alibaba. And those private companies are, are housing the data and building the algorithms that does decide how, um, how someone is socially ranked. But they're not being transparent about the algorithms or even how they are then ranking people on what criteria. Correct. Well, and, and I think it goes even deeper than that, that these companies are actually providing the raw data back to the state council through back, backdoor security applications in, in a lot of their stuff. Uh, 
And so the, the, not only do these companies um, uh, rank, rank people in a, in a non-transparent way, but, but uh, they're also sharing, sharing access to government. Now, the, the, the positive argument, if there is one, huh, although obviously the Chinese state will put one forward, is, is saying that many people don't even have credit scores because they don't have credit, they don't own houses. So the Central Bank of China has financial data for 800 million people, but only 320 million have a traditional credit history. And they say that this is long overdue. What, as someone that works in data, what's your reaction to that? Because surely this is not the answer. Well, we agree. Um, um, uh, so I think the fundamental problem here is that you're not allowing people to, to price their own privacy. So yes, this data might be used to uh, uh, offer someone goods and services that they might want, um, but you're not you're not empowering the, the, the consumer to make these decisions on their own. And we think that actually on the on the aggregate, this is going to have uh, significant negative consequences for the AI ecosystem in China. There's a lot of people who are or bullish on China because they have an advantage in economies of scale, right? When you have 1.3 billion people, you have a very large data set with which to train your AI algorithms. Mm. But what what the results will be of this forced data sharing is that people will self-filter. They will begin to change their behaviors when they're when they're being monitored. And this is a well-established uh, psychological effect uh, when, you know, the old saying, dance like no one's watching. Well, of course, when someone's watching, we dance differently. And so you can think of this at scale in China. And in, in economics terms, what it means is that uh, China's ecosystem will have a deficiency in economies of scope rather than scale. And this is one thing where the GDPR is a huge uh, uh, advantage for European AI, uh, national AI. It allows consumers to price their own privacy preferences, which should encourage a more social optimal allocation of, of data sharing. And so you can think of this in, as like um, in the industrial era when crude oil was the, was the most important, important input into the production process. You needed very efficient markets and energy to make sure that this very scarce and valuable material was not being wasted by inefficient actors. Yeah. And to do that, you need to have a, a market and prices for crude oil. Um, and just like today in the 21st century, uh, you have uh, uh, data as a fundamental input, but you actually don't have a socially optimal level of sharing because all the information is siloed in organizations. Um, and so the GDPR helps put data back in the hands of consumers, and we believe will generate tremendous advantages for the AI ecosystem by helping generate better economies of scope. Uh, whereas in China, because you have forced sharing, the self-filtering problem will produce deficiencies in scope. People will do whatever they can uh, to adjust their behaviors and opt out of the system. But surely that's that's going to hurt the Chinese economy in the long term. I mean, this... this, this... Absolutely. This would appear to be politically so. driven. I mean, uh, there, there, is a, there is a line that says that the idea is to reinforce that keeping trust is glorious and breaking trust is disgraceful, which speaks that it has nothing to do with technology or finance and everything to do with social order and control. Well, I think that's absolutely correct. Do you think it will harm the competitiveness of, of Chinese organisations? I mean, Huawei have just been kind of beginning to build a positive... Um, image, I suppose, in Western markets with their smartphones. And I know that they've been bidding for various different contracts on London Underground in terms of Wi-Fi connectivity. Uh, as people become more aware 
of of this story and, and and what they're doing do you do you think that it will have an adverse effect on those organizations should it have an adverse effect on those organizations well i think it will um have an effect in, uh in in china uh, obviously um will it matter for them bidding on on um on uh, uh, foreign projects, I'm not sure. I mean, you can you can see what happened with uh, Trump's Huawei decision. Yeah. Uh, even after it was reported that Huawei was, was was building in back doors that shared some U.S. consumer data with the Chinese government, there were secured very very deep security concerns. They still won the contract. Um, and so, oftentimes, politics trumps these type of things, uh, especially when the protection issues remain. Uh, uh, interesting to a small subsect of the population, but they are n- it's not yet a mainstream issue. And so until it becomes a major mainstream issue, I don't think politicians here will wake up. Yeah. The one, the one of the last point on this, and look, I'm sure you'd agree, but I just wanted to kind of state it, is, you know, it's been suggested that, that banning you or your kids from the best schools will be an upshot of it. So 17 people uh, who refused to carry out military service last year were barred from rolling in higher education, applying for high school or continuing their studies, according to a, a Beijing news outlet. So citizens with a low credit score, or social credit score rather, could be prohibited from enrolling their children in high-paying private schools. Um, it suggests to me that there will be uh, basically the the uh, haves and the have-nots will only continue to get wider. And if you think about us all being cyborgs and to an extent, having access to information or not having access to information, those who have that information will only kind of retain it. And if data is the oil of the 21st century, which I know you said before, then they'll have more data and more access to data, and that gap's just going to get wider and wider. We think that that's absolutely the case. Uh, and again, why why the GDPR is such, a, is such an important piece of legislation and underappreciated in terms of what it does for consumers because it gives you tremendous power over all this data, right? In a world where artificial intelligence is ubiquitous, data is power. Yeah. And so you're absolutely correct, where you have a greater inequality in data in the hands of people or organizations or governments, you will have a worsening of political and social and economic inequality. Uh, last thing, Ben, I don't know whether you've ever seen it, but if, if you haven't, you should. Um, Black Mirror on Netflix in season three, there's an episode called Nosedive. Um, which is oddly um, kind of uh, it basically highlights a society where social scores are everything. And given what we know in terms of how social can affect mental health, it's a lot. It's quite alarming that a society could be putting something of this scale in place. I haven't seen season three yet, but I'm up to I'm through season two. I'll make sure I check out that. Episode. I think people should watch it. Uh, it's all about something very, very similar. Anyway, look, thank you for giving up some time and, and joining me on the phone to discuss this. Uh, we'll post the article in the show notes. People have a have a read into it. I'd imagine you might be fairly horrified, um, but it's a very inter- very. Yeah, I'm used to this type of horror. <laughs> it's um, it's definitely a good one to persuade people that regulation should be user driven and not necessarily state driven. Yep, we agree again. <laughs> Look, thanks for your time, Ben. Thanks, Dave. Have a good one. Cheers, bye. Pleasure to be here. Bye. That brings us to the end of today's show. I hope you found that interesting. Uh, obviously, it's 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 something you should really look into. There's there's great articles on it in Wired. There's articles in the Independent. Plenty to kind of have a read of and 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 read up on. And obviously, also thank you to Brigad for being the guest on this week's show. This is the last week where I don't have Jack. We will have Josie, I think, joining me as a co-host uh, on Thursday's show. But until then, have a lovely week and we'll talk to you soon. Bye.